This episode is sponsored by the Perfect 3 Collagen. Collagen is the most abundant form of protein in our bodies, and like many things, it starts to decline as we age. If you're noticing low energy, cravings, joint pain, or dull skin and hair, you'll want to check out their collagen creamer. Add it to coffee, tea, or milk to enjoy high-quality collagen and brain-boosting superfoods on a daily basis. Check them out at theperfect3.com or visit the link in our show notes and get 10% off your first order. Welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics Podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And today we are going to be talking to Mary Beth Albright about eating and flourishing, how food can affect your emotions and vice versa. But the first thing I wanted to tell you is, Bridget, I did a thing. What'd you do? I went to see Menopause the Musical. Oh, yes. And I was supposed to go with you. Okay. So here here are my thoughts on Menopause the Musical. Very funny. Very Mm -hmm. funny. But launched before, I think, even like the research in the early 2000, I think it was like 2001 or something. Oh, even before the Women's Health Initiative. Okay. I I think it needs an update. Oh, It was very funny. The writing was wonderful. The songs were were very funny, but it just needs to be modernized, like more reflective of the modern menopause. So if anyone out there knows the, you know, people who wrote Menopause the Musical or people who are directing it, they should really get in touch with Bridget and I because I yes, think we, we have, will totally, we know all about theater. <laughs> we attend We'll theater. just revamp, so, we'll revamp yes, it for you. But it yes. was a great, a great show, definitely funny. We're seeing, but there were parts where I was like, um, we need to update that. Oh, yeah. We need okay. To update that. Oh, okay. Sure. Very good. Good. Good observations. And and I and, missed you at it because uh, I really would have liked to. Have yeah. Gone. It was a full house, and I counted. There were fifteen men in the room. <gasps> okay. I counted. So Randy was not going to go with you. My husband was like, oh, "I'm not going in Bridget's place." So today, guys, we are going to be talking about how food can support your emotional well-being. And we have author Mary Beth Albright on with her to talk about her book, Eat and Flourish. And Mary Beth is actually a food attorney. She has competed on the Food Network. She has done research, so much research-backed science in this book about not only the four fundamental emotions that we have of sad, mad, glad, and scared, but the foods that can support them, why we should eat for pleasure, what we should eat when we're stressed. I really thought this had so much research in it. What did you think? Oh, it did. I I really just, it really is making me just think. It's like she said some things like eating well, you know, diet is not necessarily eating well, you know what I mean? Or eating well is not, doesn't mean you have to be on a diet. But right. also the whole thing, and we talk about it in the interview with the 30 um, plant foods versus 10 and how much more that helps with your uh, gut microbiome. I'm really making a conscious effort now to include plant foods. And it doesn't mean that you're just eating a vegetable. It it, it means, you know, fruits or nuts or anything, mm-hmm. you know, even a grain. And I thought, okay. I'm really going to make this conscious effort to include, I think, was it 30 a week? Because I'm, I'm sure that would 30 be. 30 a week, I believe. A 30 so. a week. I can do that. But if you can, can get 10, that. you can, you know, any, yeah. I think the point is anything you can do to be aware 
of, you know, she, she kind of talked about emotional eating and how sometimes that title can get a bum rap because every part of eating is, you know, you either eat for pleasure or I mean, obviously you eat to survive, but some people live to eat and some people eat to live. Yes. You know, I, I Mm -hmm. live to eat. I'm not, I live to eat. I am not an eat to live. You do not have to, (laughs) you know, coax me into eating. She uses the acronym ping pleasure, inflammation, nutrition, and gut microbiome. And if you can get two of those, you know, what's going to not cause, what are not inflammatory foods or what's nutritional, it will help. So we are going to get started with the conversation. We just want to remind you guys that we have a newsletter that comes out every other week. And if you'd like to join our newsletter group, just leave it on our website at hotflashescooltopics.com. A little pop-up will come up and it will let you know that you can just put your email in there and you'll start getting our newsletter. Also, these videos are up on our YouTube site. We have shorts, we have clips, but we have the full video, which is up on Hot Flashes and Cool Topics on YouTube. So with that, we will let our conversation with Mary Beth Albright begin. Enjoy. Welcome back, guys. Today, we are talking to Mary Beth Albright, and she is a food expert. She was went from a food attorney to a, a competitor on the Iron Chef America, which is an interesting story. I'm interested to hear how that happened. And she's also the author of the new book, Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. Welcome to the show, Mary Beth. Thank you so much. Yeah, reinvention is not just for Madonna. Right. <laughs> There are so many books out there that talk about food and inflammation or food and our physical well-being. But to make the connection kind of to all three, how food, inflammation, mental health are all correlated, is an interesting approach to a book. And in the book, you you know, you start out the book talking about neurons and all that fun stuff, gamma this and gamma that, and you know, you lose me at neuron. But can you talk a little bit about the connection between the brain health and your food, what you're putting into your body? Sure, absolutely. The, the, the research all shows, and this is research I've been following for about 15 years since the, um, since the field of nutritional psychiatry really started and looking at ways that food affects our mood. And what I found from all of this research is that food and emotions are entwined. They're entwined like vines. You can't piece them apart. And we can either get to know this connection this connection between our emotions and our food and make friends with it and live in the reality that it that it's happening or we can deny it and say like oh i'm not an emotional eater and then like try to go and you know live the whole entire day without eating anything for pleasure which which can itself have detrimental effects on emotional well-being because food pleasure is such an important thing and so what I found from the research is that all eating is emotional eating because the biological responses that our bodies go through when we eat anything, a carrot stick, a piece of cake, a potato chip, a salad, just anything at all, there are biological reactions that happen that affect our emotions. And I think it's really important for us to understand that and to not try to deny that biology by saying, well, I'm just not going to eat sugar ever again, right? I mean, if, if you can do that, God bless you, go do it. But um, but I, I think we need to start living a little bit more in reality when we talk about food, particularly as a food writer right now. Right. You know, it was so interesting, all the studies that were in your book about just, you know, the studies on mice, a lot of them, but how sugar played such a role 
and you know when you introduced sugar and what was lit up and what they did I found that so fascinating but it, it was great like you said just to have the study there to prove it because can you talk about yeah, that study so the listeners know Absolutely. Well, there. it's interesting because a lot of dietary studies are still done on animals and on mice. And one of the reasons is because dietary studies are devilishly difficult to do. Because short of putting a webcam on someone's forehead and recording everything they're eating, um, you, it, it's difficult science because science is about controlling everything. And, you know, I don't know if you, of course you've kept a food journal. I, I don't know anyone in the world who hasn't at some point in their life kept a food journal, right? And when you're doing I've the never food, kept a food journal. I did. Oh I was on Weight Watchers. I have, a, but literally I have never in my life written down what I've eaten a day. I wouldn't oh, I have. It would I be have. depressing. I, I wouldn't want yeah, to. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. And that's one of the reasons why this research to me was so freeing because it's not about writing down every single thing that you're eating. It's about having a food pattern. And when you have a specific food pattern that includes whole grains, that includes leafy greens, that includes fatty fish, like all the things that you've heard for a really long time are good for you. Um, when you have that dietary pattern, you can have some sugar and it doesn't, it doesn't mess with the system completely because the body is more than a container for parts. It, it is a system. It is a holistic system. And if you're sitting down at a meal and you want to eat something, um, and you don't, that's going to affect your emotional well-being as well. And so we get into a lot of that science in the book. And, and some of the things that you're speaking about specifically that can be done on humans is um, tracking what your brain activity does while you're eating. And these can be done in two ways. The one that I did was in an fMRI, a functional MRI machine. So you, I spent an hour and a half in there. They just like wheeled me in. I actually don't mind them. I know no, I hear you. Like the claustrophobia is real. And like the sort of like, wow, does this is this what death feels like? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to have seen a picture of that though, with the milkshake. Oh. I, I would have loved to have seen a photo of how that happened. But go ahead with this. Yeah, yeah. well, there's actually a video. There's Ooh. a I did I did a video for the Washington Post. Oh, it's funny because oh, you can't have the camera in the room because yeah. there's no middle in an fMRI room. So it's, it's, and you know, there were half a dozen scientists watching me the whole time and they were talking to me and stuff. So, um, and what were you eating while you were in the MRI? So I worked with a gentleman named uh, Eric Stice, who is a researcher at Stanford University, and he usually does his research surrounding milkshakes and how ice cream affects our brain. So I showed up on his doorstep with also, with, you know, the milkshake, but also a, a kale juice and a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon. And I was like, I want to see how my body, really, I just wanted a glass of wine, but um, on working hours. <laughs> but also, it was really interesting to watch different parts of my brain lighting up. And you can do even more, um, it you can do even deeper studies on animals um, because you can, you know, see it's it's a very controlled environment. You know, you can, you, you can make sure that you know exactly what a mouse is eating and you can feed one mouse the same pellets as the other mouse, right? Um, but one of the most interesting mouse studies was involving the gut microbiome. Uh, and we can talk more about what the gut microbiome is, but for now, just know that that mice who are raised with early childhood trauma, and that includes taking them away from their mother super early, that includes putting them in a maze that has no end, that kind of thing. Mice that go through early childhood trauma, even though they're on the exact same diet as another mouse, will have a different makeup of their gut microbiome. 
that affects the way that they act. Uh, more anxiety symptoms, more depression symptoms. We don't know if they were actually anxious or depressed because you can't ask a, mice, a mouse those questions, but they were exhibiting those symptoms. So once they gave the, the mice a probiotic that is just found in regular yogurt, right? Any yogurt that you can find on the shelf in a refrigerator section, um, they had the decreased stress response equal to, in some cases, the antidepressant Lexapro. And I want to make sure that nobody thinks that I'm saying throw away your Lexapro. I, I, I benefit from medication every single day. I have a therapist who I talk to every single week. You know, this is food is a tool in the toolbox that we have to address mental health right now. And because we have such a global mental health epidemic, um, we need all the tools we can get. You know, that brings me just so many neat things in the book that you talked about. And this is later in your book where you talked about weight and the effects of weight. And then you were talking about a food journal. And I have done Weight Watchers twice in my life. And I found myself in this mental, like you said, writing it down. But all I thought about was food. All I thought about was what I could eat at my next meal. What am I, How many points do I have left? And that, I think, can create just all these things going on in my brain as well. And I didn't really realize it till I'm reading this saying, oh, okay. So can you talk about like just the different like cortisol and just different things that build up in your brain that can cause these issues? Well, I really respect that, as I said at the beginning of the interview, I respect that there are people who are trying to simplify food and trying to say to people like here here's you know what the best thing is to do and i respect that but also it, it it's it, it's it's both really simple and not simple at all. If you try to get into the nitty gritty of all of it, and we'll get into the cortisol question in a minute, um, it, it's really complicated. And you know, you said you, you, I lost you at neurons, and I get that, but I really try in the book to talk about the differences between hormones which travel through your blood system and neurons which travel and, and neurotransmitters which travel from neuron to neuron and happen like that. They happen in a snap, right? And so I think understanding the difference between those two things and how our food affects them is really important. But the, the cortisol question, our bodies are reacting, and, and you might you may have heard this already from other sources. Um, our bodies and our environment are a mismatch. It's an evolutionary mismatch because our bodies have gone through this evolution to respond to food shortages, to respond to needing to fight people off physically, you know, that kind of physical violence or aggression and that kind of thing. And when we, when we don't, when we have those emotions, which we still have, and that's great. Emotions are what make us human, right? Um, when we have those emotions and we don't acknowledge them or we try to stuff them down, that it is shown, um, that cortisol can build up, that we can, that there, there are a lot of detrimental things that can happen to our bodies. And, um, Having a regular food pattern, including the Mediterranean diet, I think that's one that most Americans are really um, are really familiar with. Having a, a dietary food pattern that includes, yes, certain foods, absolutely, but I'm not going to tell you like 
eat all eat all blueberries and you'll be fine. You know, have 10 walnuts and you'll never have depression again. That's not the message of this. Um, but this dietary pattern that includes eating with other people, that's part of the Mediterranean diet too. I mean, we always like to try to look at the specific foods and the specific nutrients. And that's not what food is about. We know that food is love. We know that food is comfort. We know that food is bonding with other people. And yet, when we talk about food for health, we don't talk about any of that. So I really wanted to incorporate that research into the book. We interviewed uh, Dan Buettner of oh, yeah. last season, who talks a lot about social connections and having positivity as being part of the eating experience. It's not just what you're eating, but who you're eating with. So, And as we get older, that becomes harder because not everybody has social connections. And then the pandemic hit, and a lot of people were eating by themselves or via Zoom. So that mm -hmm. social component can be even more challenging. With the book, you seem to it seems to be divided into your acronym PING, which yes. is pleasure, <laughs> inflammation, nutrients, and gut biome. Why did you divide it that way, and why are you using PING? Because I, I, uh, it's funny when you were talking about eating over Zoom. It's um, the 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 word that people in like Gen Z are using is skeeting, like ske eating over. <laughs> So yeah, <laughs> and then that's you know, like mukbang videos on YouTube where people eat enormous amounts of food and people get vicarious pleasure from that. Those are huge too. So it's that whole that whole um, area is fascinating. But um, ping, I put that together because when I'm when I'm sitting. So first of all, where did it come from? Is the past fifteen years of research. I mean, I have bankers boxes of journals and articles um, that are printed out, and I sort of wanted to take a step back and say, okay, let's take this from neuroscience. Let's take this from nutrition studies. Let's take this from, um, from gastronomy. Let's take this. And you go across the board and look at all different um, scientific disciplines and then bring them together. And those four things, pleasure, food pleasure, which by the way, pleasure is a form of nourishment, pleasure, Inflammation affects um, our emotional well-being anywhere in the body, um, and uh, and food can help with that or hurt with that, depending. Nutrients, because I don't like talking about food as just a collection of nutrients, but you need you you need you know there's there's real scientific evidence about that, so we need to talk about it. And the gut microbiome. So those were the four things at this point that we have evidence for that every researcher I spoke with across the globe said we will not in our lifetimes or in my son's lifetime have a pill that will do that will even come close to doing what food can do for us. And it, again, that's a freeing message because it's not like, okay, here are all the supplements I have to buy. Here's the exact diet I have to follow, that kind of thing. It's just sort of like when you have a meal, am I doing this for pleasure? Is there something about inflammation in here? Is there something about nutrients or is there something about the gut microbiome? And I don't do that every single time I eat, but sometimes it's like, it's nice to have it in the back of your mind of just like, oh, these are the things that I can, that I can do to follow. Now we're going to take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. And we're back. You know, you also mentioned in your book about when you ask different chefs where their favorite meal was, it, it always included who they were with. It probably included, but you know what, after you put that, I thought that is so true. I never thought about it before. You also talk about hanger and being hangry and how that originated. Can you talk a little bit about like back in the maybe the caveman days, why 
anger is such Going an issue. Going way back. <laughs> way back when it was necessary. Why why being hangry was necessary in the past. Yeah, well, I I I I wasn't there personally. I might look like I was. <laughs> you have to throw you have to throw the joke in there. I, I just I love being 50 years old. It is the best. So do we. Well, we're 55. Oh my God. You know, it's so funny because I grew up with Oprah and Oprah would always say like life begins at 50. And I'm like, yes, you were right. You were right, Oprah, about many things, but that is one thing. Ringer, um, you can now see see uh, what what scientists call, what researchers colloquially call, hangry neurons. The, the official name is AGRP neurons, but they're neurons in our brain that are connected directly to our gut. A lot of people don't know that we have a ton of neurons in our gut and in our digestive system, and those neurons are form a loop with our brain, so go back and forth. So going back to what you were saying about the shape, if you don't have enough fat in your diet, your brain, your stomach is going to tell your neurons in your brain to keep eating because it doesn't have enough fat. And there is a gut sense that tells your brain when you've had enough, for example, fat, right? So these AGRP neurons are activated when we are hungry and bundled up in the exact same neuron is hunger and anger. And evolutionarily, the reason that they believe that happened is because when we were hungry, when we felt the feeling of hunger, it wasn't painful enough to really motivate us to find food immediately, right? Because even now it's like you, you, when, you, when you feel hunger and you're like, oh, I'm really busy, so I'm going to wait a couple hours to eat, right? It, the people, people uh, you know, millennia ago didn't have that, that luxury of just knowing that there's something in the pantry. So their bodies developed, this is the theory, of course, their bodies developed um, anger in, in connection with hunger. So if people call you hangry, just be like, oh, thank you. Yes, I am so, you know, evolutionarily fit, <laughs> to survive in this world. But um, but that loop is really important because we don't entirely know the mechanism of why when we eat with other people, it has some sort of health protective benefit. Um, the, the current Surgeon General has acknowledged that there's a loneliness epidemic in America and that it shortens lifespan addition, in uh, the same way as 10 cigarettes a day. And we don't know why eating with other people has this health protective effect, but it does. And I call it the feast paradox in the book, because the more we eat with other people, the more food we eat. When we eat with other people, we usually eat a little bit more. I mean, not not particularly surprising. But when we eat with other people, we also have better health outcomes. And, you know, other countries like Japan writes, um, it, the, the, the word is ikigai, which is a life worth living. And that's actually written into their Department of Health and Welfare policies that you want people to have a life worth living. And part of the way that you can do that is to eat communally with other people. And there's been a lot of evidence about the importance of that. And we think about it for our kids all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, like like so many of us, I'm like, oh, well, I got to do this for my son. It's really important. It's like, I'm a human too, and I need that. I mean, what is good for our kids is very often good for us too. And we, I, I don't want to universalize it. I often forget that. Yeah. Well, we normally yeah. don't put ourselves first. We normally put ourselves at the bottom of the list. Let, let's talk gut biome, <laughs> microbiome, because <laughs> as someone who has suffered from IBS and... um 
gosh, gastritis, you name it, all that fun stuff. I have always have to be very careful when I'm eating, especially when I'm going out to dinner. And that does take some of the pleasure away from it. Can you talk? I had no idea how much serotonin was located in the gut microbiome. Can you talk a little bit about that connection? Yeah. So 95, that what we're talking about, and I want to be specific about that, 95% of our serotonin is manufactured or stored in our gut. And a lot of that is influenced by the gut microbiome. Take a step back. The gut microbiome is a collection of trillions of bacteria and viruses and fungi that live in our digestive tract. And that's our mouth all the way to the other end. And these are living things. These are trillions of living things that live inside of us and are not, they are not human. They are not human cells. They live inside of us and they're microbial cells. And those microbes have been with us since the beginning of our evolution. And those microbes have evolved with us to do certain things that the human body can't do on its own. So, for example, we, we now have evidence over the past 20 years. And it, it was really a, a like great timing because... Um, at the same time that the that we declared the human genome mapped, we started getting this really interesting stuff because we figured out like we're all 99.9% the same. So what is it that makes us different? And so we switched and the government switched to this gut microbiome um, aspect of like, how are the bacteria making us different? And we found that the gut microbiome, what bacteria you have in your body, because everyone's is different. It's like a fingerprint. What bacteria you have in your body influences social anxiety influences sleep, influences metabolism, also how you metabolize drugs, like, right? Like one drug might work for somebody, one drug doesn't work for another one. It's not genetics. It could be those microbes inside of you metabolizing what, you're, what you've taken. And I'm glad you mentioned IBS because the thing that microbes eat is fiber. We need to have enough fiber for those microbes to to eat and flourish. Because if, if they don't, then they're going to start eating other parts of us, for example, the gut lining. Now, there are a million reasons why, why IBS could happen. And, and one, of the, one of my fears with writing the book was I never wanted anyone to be like, oh yeah, she has IBS. She needs more fiber. Or, oh, she's depressed. She just needs more walnuts. No, that is not. That, and that was my biggest fear because there are a million things. But that's, wh that's why I think the book is important is because it looks as a human body as a system. It's a holistic system. Food is an extremely important part of it. It's a part that we put into it every single day. And it's a part that there's a lot of science about. So let's talk about that. But I am in no way saying just eat enough fiber, your IBS will go away, right? That that's a it's a totally because for example, they they found in mice, those remember those early trauma mice, a lot of them, alongside depressive and anxiety symptoms, also had digestive problems. So, so that's the, it, it, it's a food issue, but it's also a bit, you know, just, just as there are many aspects to a human being, um, there are many aspects to emotional well-being. The um, 30 plant foods versus the 10 plant foods. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. This is one of my favorite studies um, in the whole book. It was done by the American Gut Project. And the top microbiome researchers in, in, in America were involved in this. And it showed that... So the, 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 the power of any ecosystem is diversity. When you have an ecosystem, you need to have diversity within that ecosystem so everything can survive, that everything can, can, can rely on each other. 
And the same is true of our gut microbiome. People with more diverse gut microbiomes, different kinds of bacteria, different kinds of fungi, different kinds of viruses, um, have better health outcomes. So if we're looking for diversity of the gut microbiome, the whole idea of just eat blueberries and you'll be fine is, is wrong. Because if you eat blueberries all the time, you're not going to have that diversity, which you need. And what the American Gut Project found is that people who had who ate 30 plants per week had a far more um, uh, had a far more diverse gut microbiome than people who ate 10 plants a week. So think about it this way: you're probably already eating 10 plants every week, 10 different kinds of plants, wheat, corn lettuce, tomato, even if you eat hamburgers, you're probably eating like 10 different plants a week, right? Um, but getting to that 30, if you, and, and I focus on this like once a month when I go to the grocery store, I'm like, I'm going to get 30 pla plants in my cart. Sometimes the best way to do it is to just go to the salad bar and to just spend the extra money to just like put different vegetables in, right? But, um, and somebody once asked me, uh, do, does dinosaur kale and regular kale count as the same? And I was like, honey, if you're counting different kinds of kale, you're doing doing fine. You, know? <laughs> you don't need this advice. Good for you, you know. But but that that idea of 30 plants sounds really big and really overwhelming, except if you say to yourself like, okay, I usually eat rice. This week I'm going to buy a bag of lentils instead. Right? And 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 you're getting a different a different kind of plant in. So, um and I'm a big fan of the of the pre-cut salad bar. Big big fan because I I do live alone some of the time. Um and uh you know, it's just, a, it feels, it feels luxurious at the same time that it feels sort of like, oh, I'm, you know, fresh and doing something good, right? Because it feels like such a luxury to have like little different, it's like a fruit plate. If you have a fruit plate with like little bits of different kinds of fruit on it, it just feels like a luxury to me. I don't know, like one slice of orange. Oh my God, where's the rest <laughs> of the orange? You know? <laughs> Can you share a little bit of that about the emotional part of the emotions that come with food? Yeah. And as someone who's struggled with emotional well-being my entire life, and I, I don't say that in any sort of a dramatic way. It's just like, I think most of us do, right? A lot of us do. Emotions can be scary and big emotions can be scary. And I have big emotions. I'm, I'm here to tell you. The most important thing is to acknowledge those emotions and to feel them. My father passed away a few weeks ago. Oh, and God, uh, sorry. He, yeah, and it was a complicated relationship. And it's still grief. It, it it's not it's not the same grief as other people's grief. It's grief though. And so there are a million different ways to be happy. There are a million different ways to be sad. And you know, grief doesn't always involve sadness. That's the other thing. Or or it does, and then it goes away, and then it goes. So um what I think is the most important thing, I go through the four basic human emotions, which are mad, sad, glad. Uh, and, and fear. Um, and th that comes from psychology. Uh, that doesn't come from me, basic psychology. And within those, the way that your body uses food is very different. So for example, um, when they have done uh, tests on uh, people, stressed people's urine, they find extra magnesium in their urine. So that is believed that when you are stressed out, you need to take have, have just an intake of more magnesium to replenish what is being depleted. Um, and there's more research to be done there, a ton more. But as I said, it, you know, it's very hard to do diet studies on humans. And 
in a way, I, I, you know, I, because I am a health policy lawyer, um, that that was my background, and that's how I got into this at the Surgeon General's office. I'm really concerned with how we can put this into policy, and with saying, you know. The inequities, because what what my book addresses is, is the downstream effects, right, of what you're eating. But there are so many upstream issues that deal with mental health and that deal with food access and that deal with inequality. All of those things, these are not mutually exclusive, right? We need to address all of these things. And to me, having a better food policy um, and access to fresh foods and less expensive fresh foods um, it would actually be a really huge step uh, toward making all of this way easier for anybody, regardless of where you are in America. I saw that you had said that I think 60% of people eat ultra processed food or, or it's 60% of their diet. Yeah. And I think that number has actually gone up since I wrote the book. Really? You know, I just, I, well, I just saw a new study um, last week, which I haven't focused too much on yet, but I need to take a look at, but yeah, it's our more than half of the average Americans diet uh, is um, ultra processed foods. And those can really, I, I haven't waited for your question, but I will just say those. No, can really, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, pretty much my question is that if you're, if 60% yeah. of your diet is ultra processed food, inflammation is going to be a problem. And we have talked to enough experts that have said inflammation, whether it be for menopause or just for your natural lifestyle, really can affect your physical health. So can you talk about that connection with ultra processed foods, inflammation, mental health? Yes. And this is something that we've, again, only found out in the past 20, 30 years, that inflammation anywhere in the body, for any reason, as you just said, can wreak havoc on our emotional well-being. The reason is because whenever we have, um, whenever we have the, the inflammatory effect is part of our immune system. So when our body senses a threat, um, you cut your finger and, you know, a little paper cut and it gets red and swollen. Um, that's an inflammatory effect. So when it comes to, um, ultra, so when you have that inflammatory effect, inflammatory compounds get released into your bloodstream. And as we talked about before, hormones travel through the blood and it was thought, okay, well, then the brain is protected. The brain, you know, sends neurotransmitters. So we're, it's protected from that, from the, from the junk that's floating around in our blood, right? Such as inflammatory compounds. It was known as the blood brain barrier. And people used to think that blood brain barrier was impenetrable. I mean, in the 20th century, that was taught in medical schools. Do you love talking about in the 20th century? At the turn of the century, we, we, medical schools were teaching um, that the blood-brain barrier was impenetrable, that anything in the blood could not get through to the brain. Now we know that it's semi-permeable. So if you have very small, which is great because, you know, we don't want the, we don't want any of the waste products in our blood getting to our brain, right? But now we know it's semi-permeable. And if there are very small molecules in our bloodstream, they can get to the brain. And those inflammatory compounds are very small molecules, and they can get through to the brain and wreak havoc. And that's why we say inflammation anywhere, cut finger, broken leg, whatever it is, can get to your brain. Now, ultra-processed foods, the evidence shows that they cause inflammation in your body. This is a very blanket general statement. But when you're talking about ultra-processed foods, you're talking about the very the 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 things that are absolutely not anything like in nature, you know, um, 
I don't want to mention any name brands, but I, th I think I think you get the point of what mm -hmm. ultra processed foods are: refined flours, refined sugars, industrial oils are, are a big culprit too. That uh, oils that have to be created in huge, huge amounts to feed the processed food system, and and when we transfer those into when we when we go from small batch oils to enormous uh, processed oils for industrial use, um, something happens to that oil in the transformation. It's a chemical change, and so. Those chemical changes can can cause inflammation in our body, which then becomes chronic inflammation if our diet is more than half of ultra processed foods, and then that inflammation, those inflammation compounds go to um, our brains. So uh, that's when people ask me, like, what's one thing I can do? And it's like, just get rid of even. I'm not. I'm I'm not a fan of all or nothing. I, I'm a big believer that perfection is the enemy of the good in life. And so just like the next time you're reaching for an ultra processed food, reach for something else, just anything else that's not ultra processed. Um, and, and that can have a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was one study that you mentioned in your book where they did use humans. <laughs> that was so controlled. And I guess they gave half. Can you talk about that one? Yeah. That study? Yeah, this is one of my favorites that NIH a couple of years ago um, decided to invest the money and the time into housing people at the National Institutes of Health for one month, and, for four weeks. And the first two weeks, one group was given only ultra-processed foods and, and, and the other group was given only whole foods, but very similar diets. I'll give you an example in a second. And then the next two weeks, those groups were switched. So the diets would be something like on a, the on day one, the ultra processed food people would get, you know, a frozen breakfast sandwich that you would just grab from the any grocery store freezer, right? And um, processed potatoes um, and uh, things like that. The people in the whole foods group would get something that was handmade bread and an egg. And something that was like handmade sausage, and then um, and then you know hash browns that were just made there, olive oil, onions, potatoes. Same amount of calories in each meal, same amount of macronutrients and micronutrients. Like everything was very controlled. And what they found is that the people who were offered ultra processed foods ate 500 calories more a day than the people who eat unprocessed food. And it, it shows the sort of like the difficulty of the brain to control itself or to regulate, control is the wrong word, to regulate itself when we are faced with things that are ultra processed for to, to be fat, sugar, salt bombs, right? And the thing is, is like, if you offered somebody a homemade breakfast sandwich and a processed breakfast sandwich, they would probably reach for the homemade anytime, right? And so, so it's just interesting that what we've what we've given away for, for convenience sake, the the amount of health we have given away. And I'm not talking about because here's what's also interesting. I just talked about calories. All of this happens independent of weight. You do not have to lose weight. It does not, this is not, and it's not one of those diets. It's like, oh, it's not about weight loss, but you'll lose 30 pounds. Like, no, this is just all of the evidence shows that it happens independent of weight. You do not have to be on a calorie restricted diet uh, to eat for emotional well-being. And for me, that was really important. Yes. Yes, it was. You know, another thing you brought up was um, grocery stores. And I never thought about this, how the windows are just in the front of the grocery. And 
I didn't think because they're, can you talk about what they're trying to create there with the grocery stores and how now food is so available to everybody? Yeah. And not to demonize grocery stores or anybody else who's like, as I said, I understand this is the system we've all created, right? It's not like grocery stores are bad. It's like, we're going to grocery stores. So it's like, we've all created the system and the, the earliest grocery stores going back to the piggly wiggly, piggly wiggly about hundred years ago. Um, they try to remove you from the outside Whatever outside world is happening, and they bring you into, they all, you always go through the produce aisle first. Why? Because it gives you a perceived freshness for your entire grocery store trip. Aisle by aisle, you're, you're always faced with that Eden of like, Every every plant species you could ever want in this like refrigerated, misted section that looks so beautiful. So even if you don't pick up anything from that produce aisle, you're still getting this perceived freshness. And grocery stores will charge companies a lot of money to put their foods into the into the refrigerated section. So like you know, sometimes you see like a salad dressing or something in the refrigerated section. A lot of them don't need to be refrigerated. You can go and find them on the shelf later, but 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 products will pay money to the grocery store to be placed in the refrigerator section because there's a health halo around that. And so that's why it's even more important to just arm yourself with, with information. Yes. Thank you so much, Mary Beth, for coming on. Again, guys, the book is Eat and Flourish, How Food Supports Emotional Well-Being. Thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. Oh, this has been a real pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for listening to our episode today with Mary Beth Albright. It is really fascinating. And if you want to catch more about this episode or any of our episodes, you can go to our show notes on our website, hotflashescooltopics.com. Also, make sure to check us out on all forms of social media. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.